All right, so a couple of years, um, an app, an app for your phone made national news, uh, 2011 to be specific. And I'm sure there are all sorts of apps, strange apps that exist in the world. This one particularly caught national attention and perhaps even worldwide attention um, because it was titled the Confession Booth App. And not only was it a way to confess your sins, it was also the first officially approved confession app by the Catholic Church, right? So this was not like a renegade deal. The Catholic Church literally approved this app for offering one's confession. So at the time, it sold for $1.99. It is now free. It was described as the perfect aid for the penitent. It let users compile a list of their sins. They would be taken through the Ten Commandments, questions attached to each one. The app would then display the sins for which they were guilty, along with a written act of contrition. Yeah, am I saying that right? Yes, contrition, right? What you, a prayer you might say or a way in which you might express your sorrow for the way in which you have sinned. You know, I feel like there are really two ways a person, and perhaps more than that, a person could react to a story like this. Um, one might be sort of a jaded, rather uh, uncharitable response, right? To look at this sort of app and think to yourself, once again, people just hollowly going through the motions of religion, what an empty, uh, and again, this is the uncharitable interpretation, what an sort of going through the motions of faith. But I also think that there is perhaps a more um, in-depth, I guess, way to respond to this. It's just how significant it is to the point that people, it becomes an app in the app store. For people to, to be able to get rid of guilt and to say they're sorry for sin. You know, the image that I think of is of a spider web, right? Like just when you think you've gotten rid of it, it just keeps hanging on. And it is, whether you're Catholic or not, I think, a universal experience of having done something and that you know that it's wrong, but like a spider web, it is sticky and you just can't seem to let it go. Which is why humans of all kinds not only download apps, not only go to confession booths proper, uh, they do things like send postcards to this, um, he's an author, he collects basically people's confessions and then creates coffee table books out of them. But people are so desperate to feel like they have finally sent off their sin and are free that they'll do things like use an app or send a postcard or really whatever is handy. Uh, Today, as we continue in our series titled, What's So Good About the Good News? We are going to talk about forgiveness. Now, this is a very, I won't say that forgiveness is a complex subject because everybody is excited to be forgiven, but seeking forgiveness requires that you acknowledge you have done something or are something which needs to be forgiven, right? And that's where things go a little bit off the tracks. Nobody likes to hear about the word we call, quote-unquote, sin. 
I don't even like to use the word. In fact, there was some part of me that was like, can I come up with a synonym that's maybe a little more user-friendly, except for that might, you know, miss the point. And so we're sticking with the word sin. But I also know how much baggage there is and can be for some of you, perhaps, and if not for those of us sitting in the room, then some of us who are watching at home, we've heard a lot about sin and the image that always comes to mind. It's that old nursery rhyme, little bunny foo-foo scooping up the field mice and bopping them on the head, right? This is what sermons about sin feel like to me. Let's scoop up all the field mice and bop them on the head. Well, no, just in case you're concerned, that is not the purpose of this message. But again, forgiveness is only good news if we're aware that we need to be forgiven. So, with that said, um, let me go ahead and jump into our scripture passage today. And I feel like in many ways this will redirect the conversation from perhaps that fire and brimstone message you have perhaps heard or maybe are reacting to. And it is this, that not only in today's scripture passage, but consistently throughout the New Testament, the gospel, which literally means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, always begins with God, not with humanity. Good, bad, or indifferent, the gospel always begins with God, not with human perfection or sin. 1 John 1, which you heard read a little bit ago, I'm going to reread for you. Right out of the gate, even though this passage is about how we need forgiveness, it's all about the forgiver before it spends time on the forgiven. First John 1 again says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and we have seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. And this one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. The good news is good news because it always starts with God. And God is the one who existed from the beginning, even before you and I were a twinkle in God's eye, even before you and I even thought about potentially doing something right or wrong. This God existed from the beginning, and then this God came in a way that was like seeable and touchable and feelable. Can you hear it repeated in this passage that this God who forgives is a God who is real? That this is not theoretical, it is not transactional, it isn't even just intellectual. There's a song, um, and I think I meant to mention it earlier, uh, and I'll, I'll get the line wrong. But if you listen to Christian radio, you may be familiar with this line. It's got to be more like falling in love than something to believe in. That God 
who is the beginning of our gospel story, showed up in a real way. And that it isn't just intellectual or theoretical, it is incarnational. Forgiveness is not about wiping a slate clean, although that isn't a bad metaphor, but it is only a metaphor. Forgiveness is is living and breathing. It is alive. It is a restored relationship, not just an adjusted ledger account. And the end result is supposed to be, or is, we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. So no bopping the field mice on the head, right? But the thing is, there is something for which we need to be forgiven, right? There is such a thing as sin. Now, I'm not, my children have the unfortunate uh, position of being not just one pastor's daughter, two pastor's uh, children, so they're like really in for it, right? And one of the cardinal rules of being a pastor is not to tell stories about your children. So I'm just going to let you not know which child it was, and that'll probably like fly me under the radar, right? Okay, here's hoping. Uh, I, we should start a fund for their therapy now. All right, so just this past week, one of my children made a mistake. And let's be honest, it wasn't a mistake, it was an intentional act of deceit. It just was. And this child came to me because this child got caught. I might as well just go ahead and mention that. This was not like a needing to unburden oneself. There was evidence. And so this child came to me. And we had a very long conversation about what this meant. And here, here's the complexity. Here's the struggle. I wanted this child to know that what he or she had done was wrong. I also needed them to know that he or she was not wrong. And for this child, there were a lot of tears because there was confusion for them. And so as a parent dealing with an elementary school child's level of consciousness, you're struggling both to, to not minimize the sin. This, this person has intentionally deceived you, and part of my job of being a parent is to correct that behavior and name it as wrong. And yet simultaneously, when this child is just crestfallen, feeling as though this says something about their value... To need him or her to understand sin is real, but it doesn't define who you are. So let's get back to the scripture passage and see if the scripture can give us a little bit of nuance about what this means in real life. The Apostle John continues to write in chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus, and now we declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. One of the examples that I stumbled upon that I was going to use, which incidentally I think is too frivolous to be a a good example, but I'll just share it with you briefly so we know why not, is apparently the story of Florence Foster Johnson. This was made into a movie a couple of years ago, Hugh Grant and I think Meryl Streep. Do y'all remember this? No. It's about the woman who's a terrible singer but thinks she's great and performs operatic performances. This is apparently a true story, you all. I didn't realize this. I thought it was just, you know, Hollywood nonsense. As it turns out, in the 30s and 40s, there was a woman named Florence Foster Johnson who had a lot of money. And so she would, like, buy a concert hall and perform. It was, like, the early 20th century version of um, American Idol outtakes. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Where people come just to watch the the train wreck, the spectacle that is the show. And the sad thing is she never, or maybe it isn't sad. This is why I didn't choose this example, even though I'm telling it to you now, is that she never knew. So when I, we think about being people who fool ourselves, at first I thought of Florence Foster Johnson. She thought she was an amazing singer, but people really were just coming to make fun of her, right? She was playing the fool. The reason, however, I think she's not a satisfactory example, however, is that in the end she didn't really do anybody any harm. It was that definition of a mistake, right? The trouble with sin is that it's not just that we make mistakes. It's that we, we intentionally or unintentionally cause ourselves and others harm. And that's hard to say out loud and hard to admit about ourselves. But if the gospel is going to be good news, we have to acknowledge that. We fail ourselves and others if we don't acknowledge that sin is not neutral. There is some harm that comes as a result. So here's the other example, now that I've told you the superfluous one about Florence Foster Johnson. Here's the one that I think gets closer to the mark. This is an early 19th century, 1830s or 40s, about 100 years before Miss Johnson. Um, A gentleman, a Hungarian physician named Ignaz Semmelweis discovered what we now know to be modern-day germ theory. He was an obstetrician, which meant that he delivered babies. It was in Hungary, presumably. And here's the thing. At the time, for no doubt a variety of reasons, but just think about this statistic. One out of six women died when they delivered a child. One out of six. And so... This Ignaz Semmelweis, Dr. Semmelweis, obviously was very concerned with this because that's a horrifying statistic. And so he started looking into just trying to study patterns and try and figure out what they might do better or differently. And one of the things he noticed is that the wing that was 
only staffed by midwives had a significantly higher survival rate than the wing that was staffed by doctors, which is bizarre, right? Like you would think that it would be the exact opposite of that. So then he tries to dig into that further. And I don't know all of the details of the story, but at some point he made the connection that a doctor's daily routine and not that of a midwife started in the autopsy room. Gross, right? Y'all are thinking gross, except for they didn't know germ theory. And so they would perform autopsies in the morning and then having not washed their hands would make the rounds and check in on all the pregnant ladies. After a period of time of research and uh, creating a, a process of both hand washing and then some sort of antiseptic, Dr. Semmelweis's death rate went from 1 in 6 to 1 in 50. Now, here's the thing. He spent the rest of his life touring Europe trying to convince physicians to just wash their hands. And how much do you want to bet anybody listened to him? It was absurd. It was ridiculous, they said. They couldn't possibly be part of the problem. He says childbirth fever, which is what this was called, is caused by gross stuff. I won't read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proven all that I've said. All the while we talk, talk, talk. Women are dying. I'm not asking for anything world-shaking, only that you're wa you wash your hands and no one would believe him. This is, of course, an imperfect metaphor, but I feel like it's a pretty apt one for sin. There may be no victims in Florence Foster Johnson's story except for her. But the truth is, with sin, as much as we may want to say that it isn't real and that we haven't done anything wrong, there are casualties to our infection, if you will, to use the metaphor, that sometimes are inflicted upon us. Certainly the doctors themselves in autopsies would sometimes cut themselves with a scalpel and that would be the end of their lives. But unfortunately, the worst part isn't just that our sin, our disease impacts ourselves. If we don't acknowledge it and do something different, we'll end up spreading the harm to a whole lot of other people besides just ourselves. Back to this story of this child who shall remain nameless. One of the things I needed this child to know is both that sin is bad, if you will, but also that this child wasn't the only one. So, full disclosure, your pastor has not always been perfect. I mean, clearly I am now, but once upon a time, there may have been a time in early middle school where I let people copy my homework on the school bus. You should be more horrified. This is terrible, right? I wanted them to like me. And you better believe that I had done the homework, right? 
And so on the school bus, when the cool kid said, I hadn't finished my homework, Stacy, can I copy? I went for it. Now, this may sound like a very ridiculous and small transgression. So incidentally was the transgression of my child. But the point was, I knew it was wrong. And I knew it was deceitful. And I did it anyway. Now, this is small on the scale of worldly transgressions. But what kind of behavior do you think paves the way for cheating on your taxes or cheating on your husband or cheating or deceiving on anything else? This is why people say a sin is a sin is a sin that it doesn't actually matter how quote unquote bad it is. Deceit is deceit. And it's only a matter of scale. So for my child, I had said, I realized after about a year, this just isn't who I wanted to be. And so I made a decision that I was going to act differently, be someone different, and modified my behavior. Now, again, this is this tricky balancing point between wanting to make sure this child doesn't think they have to earn their worth in my eyes. His or her perfection doesn't make me love them. But at the same time, sin is the pits, even in the smallest of degrees. And so the writer of 1 John goes on to say in 1 John 2, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin... And of course, I let my child know that not only will it happen again, but the matter of degree might get worse too. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of all the world. I think like sin and like forgiveness, uh, the theological word for this is atonement. What exactly happens when Jesus like dies for our sins? What does that even mean? I think it can be overly simplified when frankly, it's one of those things that is beyond human understanding. How did Jesus and his life, death and resurrection, like how does that work? How does that forgive us of our sins? I don't know that I think there's a formulaic response to that because in the same way that God came to us in relationship, forgiveness comes to us not in a transactional but in a relational way as well. And so here's a modest attempt to try and put that theory into words. Uh, Tim Keller, who uh, is a pastor in New York City, wrote The Reason for God, which we spent some time on a few weeks ago, had a section on what is called the substitutional atonement of Christ. That's more than you need to know, but it is, it is this understanding of what happened when Jesus died for our sins. And I feel like he gave some really good examples that maybe sort of help us wrap our minds around this. And first of all, he says, in a real world of relationships— It is impossible to love people with a problem or a need without in some sense sharing or even changing places with them. 
All real life changing love involves some form of this kind of exchange. So he gives several examples of these, one of which, and once again, I'm going to give you the less good example, and then we'll end on the far better example. The less good example is let's say you get into a fender bender, right? And you knock into someone's car. Well, either you can quote unquote pay for the damage to be repaired Or the person whose car was injured can say, I forgive you, it's fine. But then that person either either deals with a beat-up car for the rest of his or her life or pays for it themselves, right? Someone must absorb the injury. Whether it's the one who has done it or the one who forgives, someone absorbs that wrong. It's a good example. It's a very limited example because, again, even that is transactional, whereas Jesus is relational. So here's a better example that Keller gives. This one comes straight out of the movies. We've probably all seen a storyline just like this. But so, he says, imagine you come into contact with a person who is innocent but is being hunted down by secret agents. There's one with Will Smith like this. I can't remember what it's called. Or by the government or by some other powerful group. This person reaches out to you for help. So you are faced with a decision. You either don't help him, in which case he will probably die. Or... If you do help him, you who previously were perfectly safe and secure will now be in mortal danger. Like exactly as he says, this is the stuff of movie plots. But that's the thing. It is either him or you. He will experience increased safety and security through your involvement, but only because you are willing to enter into his insecurity and vulnerability. Relationships cost something. And while, again, I cannot give you a formulaic example or description of just what happened with Jesus, why his life, death, and resurrection results in our forgiveness, this isn't a half-bad metaphor that when you get involved, it costs you something. That first, those first four verses of 1 John talk about how tangibly Jesus got involved. They could hear him. They could see him. They could touch him. And by being in fellowship, they were in relationship. Keller goes on to write, all life-changing love toward people with serious needs, which incidentally includes people like you and me, is a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them, in some way their weakness flows toward you as your strength flows toward them. In some way, this is what Jesus did and does for us, which is really, really good news. The last thing I'll say, and then we'll turn our attention to what's next, Um, is that because Jesus got involved and offered us costly forgiveness, the spider web of sin is no longer sticky. It's no longer sticky anymore. Not only can we let go of those things, truly set it aside. This I have done, but it is, does not define me. And, and 
I can put it in an app. Again, this is metaphorical, but like I can give it to Jesus and walk away free. And the other thing is that's good news about Jesus. And we're actually going to talk about this. I don't know if it's next week or soon. That not only are we forgiven of our sin, when we're in relationship with Jesus, we find that we're a less lot, a lot less likely to sin in the first place. And that is the gospel. That is faith. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Today is World Communion Sunday, and in just a little bit, we will transition to that. Um, I will take a moment to remind any of our viewers at home, if you are worshiping with us, that if you have not taken a moment to get together some elements for communion, and it can be very, very simple. Bread and juice were like the, the basics of Jesus's day. So uh, if it's a piece of Wonder Bread and the beverage you can find, that will be fine. But in this next minute, you may want to gather your communion supplies. Those of you who are in this room should have found them waiting for you already at your seats. Um, Communion is a reenactment of this Jesus getting involved. And because of Jesus's relational involvement with us, our sins are no longer counted against us. We are forgiven. We are restored to relationship with God and restored in relationship to one another. That's what communion means is fellowship together relationship. So as we observe communion together, let us remember just what is so good about the good news. In Jesus, even though we are flawed beyond mistakes, flawed to the point of intention, we are nevertheless forgiven and accepted and loved and redeemed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you love us enough to get involved and to absorb our frailty, our woundedness, our failures into you. So that we might be strengthened by your strength and receive your righteousness. This is truly a gift and good news. As we come to the table in just a few minutes, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember you. Pray that you would help us to remember your sacrifice and to accept your gift of grace and to let go of that sticky sin, knowing that because of you, Jesus, you have set us free. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. <laughs>